In March 1940, in a forest near Katyn village, eight huge pits were dug. Heavy trucks brought in people. They were Polish army reservists, doctors, engineers, teachers. They were ordered to get out. No one was supposed to see what happened next, but the noise of trucks deep in the forest seemed unusual to the forester. He was locked in for 25 years, incommunicado, under a false name. They could have killed him for some reason they didn't. I don't know why. Uh, so they just kept him in jail, and that's very well-known, documented fact. What did he see? What did he... he saw Enkavada shooting them. A big uh, hole, and Enkavada shooting through the back of the neck, each of them. The people were tied up with hands behind, on their knees, in on the edge of, the, of that hole. He shot and kicked into the hole. We wish to thank all of you listeners for your incredible support, all of which make this episode and this show possible. Today's episode, titled The Katyn Forest Massacre, Part 1, is a true story of a series of World War II atrocities committed by the Russian military that involved the execution of over 20,000 surrendered military officers and captured civilians within a period of a few weeks in Poland in 1940 and the attempt for decades by Russia to blame Germany for what is now considered to be one of the most barbaric attempts at genocide in the 20th century. The fact that few people know of the Katyn Forest massacres today is testament to how well Russia has succeeded in suppressing these crimes. And by using the word Russia, I'm discussing both here and throughout this story the war crimes and cover-up associated with the Soviet government and its acting military arm of secret police, the NKVD, from 1939 to 1990 and beyond. To the people of Russia who have done everything they can to distance themselves from the old Soviet ways and helped to bring about perestroika and glasnost, our hearts go out to you, especially the younger generations of Russia, for what you have accomplished politically as you continue to deal with leadership which is still all too closely connected with the past. We all share the same prayer for peace, freedom, and prosperity in the 21st century. The mass-scale killings of ethnic Slavs, mostly Poles, about 8% of which were Jews, involved surrendered Polish military officers and imprisoned Polish nationalists who had been snatched from their homes and businesses by Russia's NKVD, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs a law enforcement agency of the Soviet Union that directly executed the will of the All-Union Communist Party, also known as the Secret Police. 
Those nationalists are best defined as any persons, man or woman, who distrusted or defied Russian authority under Stalin and desired to maintain the old traditions and values. Among these people were professors, doctors, writers, and the cream of Polish society that still remained faithful to the old country and its borders. This brutal crime and the act of cover-up associated with it, a crime carried out over weeks and months and in various collection areas throughout Poland and neighboring countries, was and is one of the most heinous acts of genocide known to mankind. It deserves to be better known and remembered, along with equally heinous German atrocities committed against the people of Poland and surrounding countries of Slavic Europe. I want you to join me for a few minutes as we set the stage so we can better understand the enormity of genocide that Russia and Germany were undertaking by trying to eliminate an entire culture of people. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In researching this, I came to realize how little, besides Germany's killing of Jews, I knew about the genocide being committed in Slavic Europe. And I think it's important to share for a number of reasons. One, this happened less than a hundred years ago. That's nothing in the course of human time on Earth. Two, it could happen again. And three, it is happening today. Need an example? ISIS is systematically eradicating Yazidis, Christians, Shia Muslims, and other ethnic and religious minorities in territories controlled by that terrorist group. It's happening now, as you listen to this show. But this discussion is for another time. Geographically, Poland in 1939 was the sixth largest country in Europe, extending about 560 miles north to south, and 550 miles east to west. Poland had formed a republic, the Second Republic. One, they'd won a two-year war against Russia in the early 20s, and they were well-established with a steady host of immigrants arriving from the smaller countries surrounding them. These people were finding work in the cities in Poland, which provided a home for the arts, with composers, writers, artists, symphonies, and a culture unique to their own environment. But in 1939, Germany to the west and Russia to the east saw Poland not as a unique culture and a neighbor, but a people to be annihilated and a treasure to be plundered. The German invasion of Poland began on the 1st of September 1939, one week after Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union signed the secret Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. On that day, Germany and Slovakia attacked Poland. And on the 17th of September, the Soviets attacked eastern Poland. Warsaw fell to the Nazis on the 28th of September after a 20-day siege. Open, organized Polish resistance ended on the 6th of October, 1939, after the Battle of Kuk, with Germany and the Soviet Union occupying most of the besieged country. Lithuania annexed the area of Wilno, and Slovakia seized areas along Poland's southern border including Gorna Orowa and Tatranska Havarina, 
which Poland had annexed from Czechoslovakia in October of 1938. Poland did not surrender to the invaders, but continued fighting under the auspices of the Polish government in exile and of the Polish underground state. After the signing of the German-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, cooperation and demarcation on the 28th of September 1939, Polish areas occupied by Nazi Germany either became directly annexed to the Third Reich or became part of the so-called general government. The Soviet Union, following rigged elections to the People's Assemblies of Western Ukraine and Western Belarus, annexed Eastern Poland, partly to the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, partly to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. The Polish losses in combat against Germans, killed and missing in action, amounted to over 70,000 men. Another 420,000 of them were taken prisoner. Losses against the Red Army, which invaded Poland on the 17th of September, added up to six to 7,000 of casualties and MIA. Although the Polish army, considering the non-activity of the Allies at that beginning of the war, was in an unfavorable position, it still managed to inflict serious losses to the enemies. 14,000 German soldiers were killed or missing in action. 674 German tanks and 319 armored vehicles destroyed or badly damaged. 230 aircraft shot down. The Red Army lost about 2,500 soldiers, 150 combat vehicles, and 20 aircraft. The Soviet invasion of Poland and lack of promised aid from the Western Allies contributed to the Polish forces' defeat by the 6th of October, 1939. A popular myth is that Polish cavalry armed with lances charged German tanks during the September 1939 campaign. This often repeated account, first reported by Italian journalists as German propaganda, concerns an action by the Polish 18th Lancer Regiment near Chajnice. This arose from misreporting of a single clash on the 1st of September, 1939, near Kroyanty, when two squadrons of the Polish 18th Lancers, armed with sabers, surprised and wiped out a German infantry formation with a mounted saber charge. Shortly after midnight, the 2nd Motorized Division was compelled to withdraw by Polish cavalry before the Poles were caught in the open by German armored cars. The story arose because some German armored cars appeared and gunned down 20 troopers as the cavalry escaped. Even this failed to persuade everyone to re-examine their beliefs. Between 1939 and 1990, the Polish government in exile operated in Paris and later in London, presenting itself as the only legal and legitimate representative of the Polish nation. In 1990, the last president in exile, Ryszard Kazarowski, handed the presidential insignia to the newly elected president, Lech Walesa, signifying continuity between the Second and Third Republics. It took over 50 years to break Russia's stronghold on Poland. Polish culture during World War II was suppressed by the occupying powers of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, both of whom were hostile to Poland's people and cultural heritage. Policies aimed at cultural genocide resulted in the deaths of thousands of scholars and artists and the theft and destruction of innumerable cultural artifacts. 
the maltreatment of the Poles was one of the many ways in which the Nazi and Soviet regimes had grown to resemble one another, wrote British historian Neil Ferguson. The occupiers looted and destroyed much of Poland's cultural and historical heritage while persecuting and murdering members of the Polish cultural elite. Most Polish schools were closed, and those that remained open saw their curricula altered significantly. Nevertheless, underground organizations and individuals, in particular the Polish underground state, saved much of Poland's most valuable cultural treasures and worked to salvage as many cultural institutions and artifacts as possible. The Catholic Church and wealthy individuals contributed to the survival of some artists and their works. Germany's policy toward the Polish nation and its culture evolved during the course of the war. Many German officials and military officers were initially not given any clear guidelines on the treatment of Polish cultural institutions, but this quickly changed. Immediately following the invasion of Poland in September 1939, the Nazi German government implemented the first stages of General Plan Ost. The basic policy was outlined by the Berlin Office of Racial Policy in a document titled Concerning the Treatment of the Inhabitants of the Former Polish Territories from a Racial-Political Standpoint. Slavic people living east of the pre-war German border were to be Germanized, enslaved, or eradicated, according to the policy, depending on whether they lived in the territories directly annexed into the German state or in the general government. In 1941, German policy evolved further, calling for the complete destruction of the Polish people, whom the Nazis regarded as subhumans. Under both Nazi and Soviet domination, most university professors in Poland, as well as teachers, lawyers, artists, writers, priests, and other members of the Polish intelligentsia, were arrested and executed or transported to concentration camps. During operations such as A.B. Akchon, this particular campaign resulted in the infamous Sonderaktion Krakow and the massacre of Luau professors. During World War II, Poland lost 39 to 45 percent of its physicians and dentists, 26 to 57 percent of its lawyers, 15 to 30 percent of its teachers, 30 to 40 percent of its scientists and university professors, and 18 percent to 28 percent of its clergy. The Jewish intelligentsia was exterminated altogether. The reason behind this policy was clearly articulated by a Nazi Gauleiter. In my district, any Pole who shows signs of intelligence will be shot. After the Soviet invasion of Poland, which began 17th of September 1939, that followed the German invasion that had marked the start of World War II, the Soviet Union annexed the eastern parts, Kresy, of the Second Polish Republic, comprising 77,600 square miles and a population of 13.29 million. Hitler and Stalin shared the goal of obliterating Poland's political and cultural life so that Poland would, according to historian Neil Ferguson, cease to exist not merely as a place, but also as an idea. The Soviet authorities regarded service to the pre-war Polish state as a crime against revolution and counter-revolutionary activity and arrested many members of the Polish intelligentsia politicians, civil servants, and academics, as well as ordinary persons suspected of posing a threat to Soviet rule. More than a million Polish citizens 
were deported to Siberia, many to gulag concentration camps for years or decades. Others died, including over 20,000 military officers who perished in the Katyn massacres. The Soviets quickly Sovietized the annexed lands, introducing compulsory collectivization. They proceeded to confiscate and nationalize and redistribute private and state-owned Polish property. In the process, they banned political parties and public associations and imprisoned or executed their leaders as enemies of the people. In line with Soviet anti-religious policy, churches and religious organizations were persecuted. On February 10th of 1940, the NKVD unleashed a campaign of terror against anti-Soviet elements in occupied Poland. The Soviets' targets included persons who often traveled abroad, persons involved in overseas correspondence, Red Cross workers, refugees, smugglers, priests, and members of religious congregations, the nobility, landowners, wealthy merchants, bankers, industrialists, and hotel and restaurant owners. Stalin, like Hitler, worked to eliminate all of Polish society. The Soviet authorities sought to remove all trace of the Polish history of the area now under their control. The name Poland was banned. Polish monuments were torn down. All institutions of the dismantled Polish state, including the Lwów University, were closed, then reopened but mostly with new Russian directors. Soviet communist ideology became paramount in all teaching. Polish literature and language studies were dissolved by the Soviet authorities, and the Polish language was replaced with Russian or Ukrainian. Polish language books were burned, even in primary schools. Polish teachers were not allowed in the schools, and many were arrested. Classes were held in Belarusian, Lithuanian, and Ukrainian, with a new pro-Soviet curriculum. All publications and media were subjected to censorship. The Soviets sought to recruit Polish left-wing intellectuals who were willing to cooperate. Soon after the Soviet invasion, the Writers' Association of Soviet Ukraine created a local chapter in Lwów. There was a Polish language theater and radio station. Polish cultural activities in Minsk and Vilno were less organized. These activities were strictly controlled by the Soviet authorities, which saw to it that these activities portrayed the new Soviet regime in a positive light and vilified the former Polish government. So now we are caught up on how totalitarian socialist republics are created, what life is like if you're lucky enough to survive. We are now in Poland in 1940, just months after Germany's assault, and Stalin's plan to help Germany eradicate Poland and its people from the face of the earth is taking shape. Those who study history will tell you that history is full of lies. The very word history is ambiguous. It consists of two words, his and story. Follow that up with the other guy's story, then the witness's story, and finally the truth, which is often never arrived at completely. Decades and centuries later, the curtain slowly descends over what actually transpired. How fast it descends, depends on who's trying to close the curtain. So now we begin a tale of two cities, so to speak, although they were only rural villages with very similar names. They were only 160 miles apart, one in the country we now know as Belarus, and one in what was then 
eastern Poland, towns with similar names, Katyn spelled K-A-T-Y-N, and Hatton spelled K-H-A-T-Y-N, which research tells us is pronounced Hatton. Rural communities whose only crimes were that of being too close to two murderous countries between 1939 and 1943, Germany and Russia. They were typical of hundreds of rural communities that dotted the countryside in that area, no different than the little towns of Iowa or Maine or Nebraska here in the U.S. until 1939, if you draw a line between Warsaw and the west and Moscow to the east, these little farming communities would be right about in the middle, with the Katyn Forest being a little closer to Warsaw. Both communities were victims of terrible war crimes. One, Katyn, committed by the Soviets in 1940, but blamed on the Germans. And two, Hatton, a smaller but no less heinous crime committed by the Germans in 1943. The Soviet cover-up of the huge spate of ordered executions that we associate with the Katyn Forest murders because this was the first of the Russian killing field locations that became known to the public, persisted for over 60 years, and there are still those Soviets willing to deny it. The Germans who slaughtered all the innocent men and women and children in the town of Hatton are mostly dead now, and Germany, like Russia, can only hope people forget what brutal killing machines the German soldiers and the Russian soldiers in the past two wars could be. The fact that it took those genocidal war crimes so long to be discovered is actually simple. Dead men and women tell no tales, and neither does a corrupt government. Corruption often happens when people value their paychecks and their politics, and yes, in some cases, their lives, over their desire to tell the truth. Why haven't we heard the morbid tales of these two similar-sounding rural communities, Hatton and Catton? Partially because the information was suppressed. Partially for the reasons given above. Why have the communities of Katyn and Hatton disappeared from and reappeared on Russian maps? Why have certain memorials, very late in coming, still been built on lies and in the wrong location? How did Polish jokes originate? Who did they benefit? And who helped to spread them? What other attempts have been made to cover it up? Quite a few you will discover as this story unfolds. It wasn't until 1989, 50 years after the fact, that the Soviets admitted that they had signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany on August 23rd of 1939, just weeks prior to Germany's invasion of Poland. In addition to stipulations of non-aggression, the treaty included a secret protocol that divided the territories of Romania, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Finland into German and Soviet spheres of influence, anticipating potential territorial and political rearrangements of these countries. Stalin and Hitler later traded proposals after a Soviet entry into the Axis Pact. As we all know, Germany invaded Poland on the 1st of September, 1939. Joseph Stalin waited until 17th of September before launching his own invasion of Poland. Part of southeastern Karelia and Sala region in Finland were annexed by the Soviet Union after the Winter War. This was followed by Soviet annexations of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and parts of Romania. 
The campaign against the people of that region, with the Poles being the largest in numbers and therefore the hardest hit, went far beyond tanks and guns. There was a massive effort on Hitler and Stalin's part to dehumanize the Poles and make them appear to the world as racially inferior. Their propaganda machines worked day and night to create and spread myths about Polish stupidity. Polish jokes came from Nazi German propaganda that was then published, ironically, by Soviet communist sympathizers in Hollywood. The racist stereotype that Poles are intellectually inferior or have subhuman intelligence originated from Nazi German propaganda and Soviet propaganda. They used many techniques, including the big lie technique that created an intentional distortion of the truth and then repeated it over and over for political purposes, a technique that political parties around the world still use. One famous myth they created, and one that we just covered, that Polish horses were used to attack German tanks. Hitler was quoted to have said, The great mass of people will more often fall victim to a big lie than a small one. This from Mein Kampf, Chapter 10, Volume 1. The Soviet communists saw the value of this myth and the racist notion that Polish people have subhuman intelligence, so they had their left-wing sympathizers in Hollywood push it to the American public using anti-Polish television and movie imagery. The image of Polish people having subhuman intelligence was useful to the Soviet communists too. Since then, people would not mind too much if Poland is occupied by the Soviet Union, if Poles are portrayed as having a Slavic culture that is inferior and less than human. The Soviets have pushed this for decades to make themselves feel better about the cultures they've destroyed. Ask anyone in the U.S. how prevalent Polish jokes were in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and sadly, even now. The Soviets and Hitler did their job well. As a kid and as a young man, I told them as well, and it shames me now to know the truth behind them and how through my ignorance I was spreading propaganda for the USSR. The Katyn Forest Massacre is a history that needs telling, and we can only tell it thanks to the efforts of many people who have fought and persisted in getting to the truth through mountains of obstacles and obfuscations of what really happened. The 82nd Congress of the United States held hearings on this in 1951 and published a report in 1952, a report which included a mountain of evidence that included witness testimony and every kind of physical evidence imaginable. Yet, as you will hear, Russia still denied the crime for another 60 years. This from an article titled, The Katyn Controversy, Stalin's Killing Field, written by Benjamin B. Fisher and found at CIA.gov, which begins with these chilling but true words. One of the earliest and certainly the most infamous mass shootings of prisoners of war during World War II did not occur in the heat of battle but was a cold-blooded act of political murder. The victims were Polish officers, soldiers, and civilians captured by the Red Army after it invaded eastern Poland in September of 1939. Strictly speaking, even the Polish servicemen were not POWs. The USSR had not declared war, and the Polish commander-in-chief had ordered his troops not to engage Soviet forces. But there was little the Poles could do. On the 28th of September, the USSR and Nazi Germany, allied since August, partitioned and then dissolved the Polish state. 
They then began implementing parallel policies of suppressing all resistance and destroying the Polish elite in their respective areas. The NKVD and the Gestapo coordinated their actions on many issues, including prisoner exchanges. At Brest-Litovsk, Soviet and German commanders held a joint victory parade before German forces withdrew westward behind a new demarcation line. As a result of these decisions, Stalin, seeking to annihilate any opposition that might come from the people of Poland, decided upon a plan to imprison and either reindoctrinate or simply execute all influential Poles who were capable of resistance, militarily or intellectually. In the fall and winter of 1939 and 1940, as the might of Hitler's army invaded Poland, Stalin's Red Army claimed a portion of that country as their own and set up dozens of prison camps. Stalin's killing field continues here. Official records opened in 1990, when Glasnost was still in vogue, show that Stalin had every intention of treating the Poles as political prisoners. Just two days after the invasion began on the 17th of September, the NKVD created a directorate of prisoners of war. It took custody of Polish prisoners from the army and began organizing a network of reception centers and transfer camps and arranging rail transport to the western USSR. Once there, the Poles were placed in special concentration camps where, from October to February, they were subjected to lengthy interrogations and constant political agitation. The camps were at Kozelsk, Starobelts, and Ostakov, all three located on the grounds of former Orthodox monasteries converted into prisons. The NKVD dispatched one of its rising stars, Major Vasily Zarubin, to Kozelsk, where most of the officers were kept, to conduct interviews. Zarubin presented himself to the Poles as a charming, sympathetic, and cultured Soviet official, which led many prisoners into sharing confidences that would cost them their lives. The first of what is to come is a letter from Irina Grabowa to her husband Joseph, who is being held at a prison camp in Poland. Her letter from her makeshift home in whatever country she had been able to escape to had been intercepted and earmarked for names of senders and their known associates, and then returned. Joseph's letter to her did make it to her, and both letters were provided as evidence of Joseph's presence at that camp. These letters were brought forward during the testimonies given at the U.S. Congressional hearings in 1952 regarding the Katyn Forest massacres. Joseph was among the tens of thousands who were executed by Soviets, although no one was to know for years how he died. Her letter begins, March 20, 1940. Dear Joseph, there is again happiness in our hearts and at home because your third letter has arrived. The second one was lost somewhere. I'm terribly happy that you're able to write to us because writing as before, somewhere into the great unknown, never being sure whether it will reach you, was hopeless. Your letter dated the 13th of November, left Moscow the 25th of November, and today is the 12th of December. It therefore took a month. The previous letter took only three weeks. But the most important thing is that it arrived. Because other ladies whose husbands are where you are don't receive any letters. They have written me from America that they have sent a parcel, but that it was returned. So write if you can to Geneva that in case they receive any parcels for you, they should be forwarded to your present address, because parcels are usually forwarded through the International Red Cross. Stefan wrote that they will send you another parcel. He doesn't seem to be doing too well, 
but Bladick is doing very well. If I could send you something, I would send you some of your linen, because I managed to save one pair and some socks so that you wouldn't have to mend. I have about three pairs. However, I cannot send them because they will not accept parcels. Have you written to Lesowski? He is still in the same place and perhaps will be in a better position to send something to you from his old supplies. I would in exchange send something to his foster son who is a prisoner of war over here and whom I try to help as much as I can, although I have not very much myself. We ourselves don't eat any butter. We're well off when we have milk or coffee with bread. I try to get some from time to time for the children, but the adults have forgotten about this produce which costs about six times as much as before. Don't think, however, that we are starving. It isn't that bad because we put together any money that we have and somehow manage to live. Of course, there are no luxuries, but we have enough for bread and a modest meal, the more so because we don't buy any clothing. First of all, because we do not have any money for it, and secondly, because there's none to be had except what is most essential. We keep our spirits and courage and believe that our star will once again shine for us. And now I'd like to tell you what was saved in the turmoil. Well then, your stamps, the dining room and study, the piano, the easy chairs and settee, the clothes stand from the entrance hall, the washroom, and a little bit of crockery. I'm calling it crockery because they are the only remnants of what has not been broken. From among your personal belongings, only a pair of shirts, your uniform, shoes, three pairs of socks and six collars, one suit, your skiing shoes, one pair of shoes, the pair of old patent leather shoes, and the old brown pigskin pair remain. I think I'll sell the unit in the two pairs of shoes. Not just now, but perhaps later I shall have to. Oh yes, three carpets also arrived. The rugs, the silver, glass, and china, a whole basket full of linens and bedding, your suits, coats, shoes, the children's winter coats, etc. Everything was lost. From among the linens, I still have the quilts, the elder down, and three pillows, because I carried them with me. Also my own and the children's clothing, which we also had with us. Whether what was left will survive, I cannot say, but it is still there. I paid Noaka for it. Our belongings are being used by tenants, so everything is being ruined. The most important thing, however, is that the war should end happily, and then the rest will be all right, because Christmas is near. I want you to know that we think of you and long for you, and on Christmas Eve our hearts and thoughts will be with you, with the hope that we may celebrate the next one together. Send you a kiss with love, and so do the children. Ira. P.S. I enclose a Christmas wafer. Irina Graboa. And then this letter back to Irina from Joseph. My beloved ones, days, weeks, and years pass, yet it is only the beginning of the chaos of the old world. The destruction of war is now added to the sufferings of the world, and the flames of war begin slowly to envelop both hemispheres. War, destruction, hunger, and misery among nations are already old phenomena in the small sector of the globe on which we live. We must, however, persevere and await our fate, mindful of our national posts and of the inexhaustible values of the spirit of our nation. I cannot describe to you how I yearn for you all. Great poets like our Adam Mikiewicz have expressed it in words. Often in my dreams I am together with you all. I remember Huesio as a small boy 
to whom I was telling so many stories. How is he developing and Olenka without school? For this so-called study is really no education at all. No, there is none anywhere. I suppose she does not want to know what Filichowska has written about marriage. Education gives contentment, self-assurance, and assures a permanent basis for one's existence. Despite my 43 years, I am still learning, because as Socrates, the greatest of all philosophers, once said, I know that I do not know anything. Let Olenka pay special attention to mathematics and foreign languages. Of course, in order to learn, one has to have health, peace, and something in one's stomach, and also good intentions. Irina, I am awaiting a reply from you to my two letters of October and November. I hope you have received them and that you will not worry about me. Winter here is somewhat late. Since the first snow in October, which has now disappeared, none has fallen so far. I have rubbers so that I don't think I shall have wet feet. I also have my own socks and foot clouds for wrapping up my feet. I live under hygienic conditions and am able to have a bath, to walk, and to read a lot of good books. Many things of which I have been ignorant I now understand, and I have benefited a lot. I would like for our children to learn a few foreign languages. I only now appreciate how one benefits from it, since I am able to read with ease books in a foreign language when none in our language are available. Irina, darling, you need not worry about me at all. The worst has already passed, in particular the beginning of the road, when I was so weak that I was unable to enter the railway carriage, and later when anemia and finally apathy set in. All this has luckily passed. However, you all managed somehow, and I have regained my health, strength, and faith in the future. I am keeping informed of the international situation better than you are able to, for I read communiques of both sides, as well as commentaries in the press. I still have no letter from Stefan, but I shall try again to write to him. As to the severe winter, please do not worry. It is not so bad. The polar circle is still quite far from here, and I do have warm shelter and sufficient food. I have not as yet seen any bears, not even brown ones, nothing, except crows and other birds. During the summer I was sunbathing and swimming in the river. Be of good cheer, for as the proverb goes, he who is to hang will not drown. After all, I can't lose what I no longer possess, and moreover, the naked do not fear robbery. The considerable logistic effort required to handle the prisoners coincided with the USSR's disastrous 105-day war against Finland. The Finns inflicted 200,000 casualties on the Red Army and destroyed tons of materiel and much of Russia's military reputation. That war, like the assault on Poland, was a direct result of Stalin's non-aggression pact with Hitler. The Russian NKVD kept itself very busy on the sidelines while the Germans were getting all the bad publicity. Estimates of the death toll vary between locations. Nearly 9,000 in the Ukrainian SSR, 20 to 30,000 in eastern Poland, now part of western Ukraine with the total number reaching approximately 100,000 victims of extrajudicial executions in the span of a few weeks. The launch of the German Operation Barbarossa surprised the NKVD, whose jails and prisons in territories annexed by the Soviet Union in the aftermath of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact were crowded with political prisoners. In occupied eastern Poland, 
the NKVD was given the responsibility of evacuating and liquidating over 140,000 prisoners. Recently released Soviet records show the NKVD evacuation order number 00803. In Ukraine and western Belarus, 60,000 people were forced to evacuate on foot. By official Soviet count given 60 years later, more than 9,800 were reportedly executed in the prisons. 1,443 were executed in the process of evacuation. 59 were killed for attempting to escape, 23 were killed by German bombs, and 1,057 died from other causes. It was not only the numbers of the executed, historian Yuri Boschik writes of the murders, but also the manner in which they died that shocked the populace. When the families of the arrested rushed to the prisons after the Soviet evacuation, they were aghast to find bodies so badly mutilated that many could not be identified. It was evident that many of the prisoners had also been tortured before death. Others were just killed en masse. Approximately two-thirds of the total number of 150,000 prisoners were murdered in Poland. Most of the rest were transported into the interior of the Soviet Union, but some were abandoned inside the prisons if there was no time to execute them, and others managed to escape. The NKVD and the Red Army killed prisoners in many places from Poland to Crimea. Immediately after the start of the German invasion, the NKVD commenced the execution of large numbers of prisoners in most of their prisons and the evacuation of the remainder in death marches. Most of them were political prisoners, imprisoned and executed without a trial. The massacres were later documented by the occupying German authorities and used in anti-Soviet and anti-Jewish propaganda. After the war and in recent years, the authorities of Germany, Poland, Belarus and Israel identified no fewer than 25 prisons whose prisoners were killed and a much larger number of mass execution sites. Researching here, I have three pages of locations in small type with the exact locations of the executions in over six countries, the method of execution, and the number of innocents killed. But I'll spare you the roll call. The reason the Katyn Forest is so important is because it was the first of all these Russian atrocities to come to the attention of the public. The Katyn Massacre was a series of mass executions of Polish nationals carried out by the NKVD in April and May of 1940. Though the killings took place at several different locations, the massacre is named after the Katyn Forest, where some of the mass graves were first discovered. The massacre was prompted by NKVD chief Lavrenci Beria's proposal to execute all captive members of the Polish officer corps, dated March 5, 1940, and approved by the Politburo of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, including its leader, Joseph Stalin. The number of victims is estimated at about 22,000. The victims were executed in the Katyn Forest in Russia, the Kalinin and Kharkiv prisons, and elsewhere. Of the total killed, about 8,000 were officers imprisoned during the 1939 Soviet invasion of Poland. Another 6,000 were police officers, and the rest were arrested Polish intelligentsia that the Soviets deemed to be, in quotes, intelligent agents gendarmes, landowners, saboteurs, factory owners, lawyers, officials, and priests, 
end quote. In reality, these people were anyone, man or woman, who represented the intellectual or military elite of Poland. This consisted of writers, poets, professors, military officers, teachers, doctors, owners of companies, wealthy, and all friends, associates, and relatives of the above mentioned. For the Western Hemisphere, a good example, this bears many similarities to Castro's takeover of Cuba. And for the newly imprisoned Poles, Lithuanians, Russian dissidents, Jews, and others, although the Russians had rounded them up and taken them from their homes and families, their hope was that the NKVD would be the lesser of two evils and could keep them alive until the forces of the West could free the Polish people. The UK was hanging on for its life. Their only hope was an America that hadn't even entered the war. In the spring of 1940, in the Katyn Forest, the men of the Russian Red Army's NKVD, which was to be responsible for the execution-style murders of over 171,000 unarmed civilians, herded their prisoners into an area of the forest in which they had dug long mass graves. One by one, armed men of the NKVD placed a pistol to the back of the head of each man and woman who had their hands tied behind them and shot them in cold blood letting them fall upon the others whose bodies had preceded theirs into the cold ditch that had been bulldozed especially for them. For every one of them, their only crime was having achieved something of themselves and being proud of their country. Those who died at Katyn included an admiral, two generals, 24 colonels, 79 lieutenant colonels, 258 majors, 654 captains, 17 naval captains, 3,420 non-commissioned officers, seven chaplains, three landowners, a prince, 43 officials, 85 privates, and 131 refugees. Also among the dead were 20 university professors, 300 physicians, several hundred lawyers, engineers, and teachers, and more than 100 writers and journalists, as well as about 200 pilots. It was their social status that landed them in front of the NKVD execution squads. Most of the victims were reservists who had been mobilized when Germany invaded. In all, the NKVD eliminated almost half the Polish officer corps. Part of Stalin's long-range effort to prevent the resurgence of an independent Poland. Recent historical research shows that a percentage, 7 to 900, of the 22,000 victims were Polish Jews. Professor Stanislaw Swianowicz was the sole survivor of Katyn. He was waiting to board a bus to the forest area when an NKVD colonel arrived and pulled him out of line. Swianowicz was an internationally recognized expert on forced labor in Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany who had been born in Poland when it was still part of the Russian Empire and had studied in Moscow he ended up in Siberia and, after the war, emigrated to the United States, where he taught economics at the University of Notre Dame. At least one CIA analyst remembers the professor from his days in South Bend. Here are portions of his testimony which are very revealing in terms of the personalities of both the NKVD operators and the prisoners. It's a lesson in socialism, keeping in mind the USSR stands for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 
and what is required in terms of human programming for a socialist government to exist and prosper. The more you understand history, the better you will understand what socialism really is and what it means to millions of people who have lived with it in all its forms. Today's whitewashed definition doesn't begin to do it justice. He describes the people he remembers from the time he was interred. He remembers Lieutenant Colonel Dudzinski as a limited intellect with tremendous self-assurance, followed blindly Colonel Burling's indications and used by the latter whenever he required someone to play the role of an initiator of some action. Courageous and capable of anything, he uncompromisingly maintained the necessity of getting rid of the entire Polish educated class. He remembers Captain Rosen Zawadzki as a man of indisputable talent, conscientiously headed to his chosen goal. He played the part of Berlin's chief of staff. On his initiative were held various lectures on communist topics, which glorified the ideology of Leninism and Marxism and the Stalinist constitution. Knowing that I had fought against the Bolsheviks in 1939, he quoted his own example of how as a battalion commander he rode over to the Bolsheviks to report to them that his soldiers were not going to fire at the Red Army. Together with 2nd Lieutenant Imak, 2nd Lieutenant Szypiorski, and later on also with 2nd Lieutenant Wikirkiewicz, they formed the communist intellectual team which decided what can and cannot be done or what should or should not be done in accordance with the teachings of Engels and Marx. They constantly lectured us on communist topics and advised all others to know at least as much as they did about communism. What he thought of 2nd Lieutenant Wikirkiewicz, a man incapable of having an idea of his own, of limited intelligence and with an unhealthy mania of equaling his three communist comrades. He once had a very long lecture about the origins of the family. The lecture would have served as a welcome contribution to the most pornographic gutter paper. What he thought of Lieutenant Siewierski, a courageous young man rather of impetuous character, greatly concerned with his personal comfort. He constantly maintained that when back in Poland at the head of his battalion, he would instantly run away from the Bolsheviks at the very sight of the Polish army. He refused to sign the revised text of the Declaration of Homage, but after long persuading, was forced somehow, and did sign it in the end. Lieutenant Zumigowski, quiet, level-headed, and sensible man, wanted to preserve his strength for Poland. Lieutenant Tom Alla, limited intelligence, he only thought about his own comfort, and had no idea at which point the road to disgrace began. Ensign Kukulinski, an honest man and a patriot, educated in a clerical seminary, subordinate of Colonel Berling while still in Poland, accustomed to execute his orders. No family background, no orientation where good ended and evil started. Courageous. Note, those numbered from 9 to 12 in normal conditions would have been good officers and would have performed their duties quite well. But in the given circumstances, when it came to choose between personal comfort and the misery of imprisonment, they chose the former. What he thought of 2nd Lieutenant Imak, a confirmed adherent of communist ideology. He started working for them already in Poland and had done so till most recent times. He believed that humanity will be happy only if and when communism will gain power in the whole world. 
an ideological communist executive. What he thought of the second lieutenant, Szypiorski, active Polish socialist and a zealous assistant of Berlin and the whole communist group, an impetuous man with no ethics at all, ready to sentence without a wink the entire Polish intelligentsia, including women and children, to deportation from the future 17th Union Republic, which was to be communist Poland. The facts related above had taken place during the most critical stage of the present war. Towards the end of 1940 and at the beginning of 1941, it was impossible to imagine that any human force could induce the Soviet Union to release from its concentration camps and prisons the Poles they kept in their hands. All believed in a final victory over the Germans and in the rebuilding of Poland. At that time, the power of the Soviet Union was steadily increasing and was aimed at overpowering Poland and all Western Europe. The leaders of the USSR maintained that with the collapse of Germany, the Red Army would enter Poland and that at its head would march Polish Red Troops and that everybody would therefore be greeted with flowers and acclaimed as liberators. The entering of the Soviet Army into Germany was supposed to be, according to the plans of the Third International, accomplished amidst joyful celebrations held throughout Germany. To my remark that the Germans, even if defeated, would still have sufficient arms and ammunition to resist the Soviet army, Colonel Jigorov told me that I was very naive to think so. There were very many communists in Germany who were going to prepare thoroughly the reception of the Red Army. At the present time, the greatest enemy of the Soviet Union was England. People with foresight began to seek other ways out without taking any heed of whether the road they were taking led to disgrace or not. Today I recall the words of Colonel Burling who, when trying to persuade me to sign the declaration I have already spoken about, used the argument that, after all, if by some miracle Poland would be rebuilt, there would be a general amnesty because there would be thousands of people who would have done the same as we had, and it would be an impossibility to sentence all of them. After that conversation, when the inmates of my room endeavored to make me change my mind, I answered that I did not wish my son or wife to have to say that his father or her husband was a traitor. All that time I had no illusions about the possibility of a happy ending of the whole affair. What happened next seems to me like a fairy tale from the Thousand and One Nights, because I was absolutely sure that I'd never regain freedom again. I would also like to mention that in that same villa, a communist government from Finland had been trained before our arrival there, which did in fact turn up in Finland in the beginning of 1940. We had established this fact by discovering Finnish cigarette holders and newspapers of Finnish origin with Finnish inscriptions they must have left behind, and also by what we were told by the female members of our servant staff. Colonel Rosen Zawatsky had also mentioned it to us. This ends the testimony of Professor Stanislaw Slyonovich. Brainwashing, lies, internment camps, human genocide, the annihilation of an entire culture. All the evidence is there, and Russia is about to pull off one of the greatest cover-ups in history. In Part 2, we'll uncover the German massacre at Hatton, Katyn's namesake, and witness the loss of all but a handful of its inhabitants, men, women, and children, to brutal Nazi killers, and discover why the Soviets chose this site, and not Katyn, for a war memorial commemorating the dead 
at the Katyn Forest Massacre. We'll find out how Russia was allowed to blame the Germans for the massacres of over 20,000 innocents in the Katyn Forest and elsewhere, and get away with it for over 60 years. We'll discuss a CIA report that explains how two of our U.S. servicemen, who were then German POWs, witnessed an internment at the site of Katyn that proved that Russians had committed the massacre, not Germans. And when they were freed, these same men reported it to the American brass, who deep-sixed their reports, letting the lies stand for political reasons. We'll explore how the Soviets created a one-sided commission to investigate the Katyn executions, then invited two well-known American journalists and the daughter of Senator Avril Harriman to report on the findings, convincing the hapless Americans that the Germans had done it, and still the American top brass kept the truth buried. We'll discuss why conspiracy theories are still flying over the mysterious crash of a Russian Tupolev Tu-154 on April 10, 2010, near Smolensk, a crash that killed all 96 people on board, including the then-president of Poland, Lech Kaczynski, and his wife Maria, the former president of Poland in exile, Rizard Kazarowski, the chief of the Polish general staff, and other senior Polish military officers the president of the National Bank of Poland, 18 members of the Polish parliament, and relatives of the victims of the Katyn massacre, as it was on its way to land at Smolensk to attend an event marking the 70th anniversary of the massacre in the Katyn forest. An incredible coincidence, as nearly every person on that plane had dedicated a part of their lives to exposing the Katyn cover-up and making the Kremlin reluctantly cough up the truth after all those years. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We ask that those of you who use Apple products please give us a written review at iTunes Podcast app. For you Android users, you can find us at podbay.fm at stitcher.com. For the rest of you who could care less what an app is, get on your phone or laptop and put www.one. 1001storiespodcast.com in your URL at the top. For Twitter, our Twitter address is at 1001podcast. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. I'm convinced that we have the best audience in all of podcastdom. Our numbers tell us you're getting to be a pretty large group. Thanks to all of you. You reside in over 200 countries. You represent all ages and backgrounds. You have a pretty good knowledge of history and you like a well-told story. Stay tuned for part two in the massacre at Catton Forest.